Welcome to the CCWSA podcast. I'm Rob High, uh, joined today by Philip Naiman and our special guest, Andrew Branca. Welcome, gentlemen. Happy to be here. Merry Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas, indeed, yes. We got to uh, have the honor to have, have Andrew do some some day-by-day uh, -day postings for us following the Rittenhouse case. Um, and even prior to, I thought it was fantastic the way you took charge by charge by charge and went elements of the crime and the things that we could observe, at least at that time, and see the things that had been done. Um, and I thought you were like spot on. I thought you did a fantastic job on that piece. Oh, very kind of you. Um, but I, I know we, we were on a couple of weeks back with Don and uh, I just wanted to kind of touch base with you again, um, kind of a follow-up and summarization of the Rittenhouse trial. And I'd like to know kind of your thoughts and opinions and uh, your takeaways and kind of kind of summary so uh. well i mean the prosecution was really a, a joke from the start it was uh the the prosecutor's narr narrative of the case was uh full of lies and, and deception and misrepresentations uh from the from the opening statement forward um it was ultimately based around this uh this drone video footage that the evidence fairy dropped on the prosecutor's doorstep midway through the trial that the defense had never seen before um, it was presented to the defense in a, um, I can only describe it as a doctored form, uh, a degraded form in terms of its resolution. And folks, that's, that's no different than if, if the evidence was 10 pages of typed paper and the prosecution gave them only three of those pages and not the other seven. That's the equivalent here. Uh, so they gave them, and of course, the defense looks at that low resolution footage, can't make anything out of it, figures we don't have to worry about this. Um, and then in court, they show the prosecution shows the jury a high resolution version, which, by the way, you really can't see anything in that one either. So then they present uh, enhanced versions of the video, still photo captures of the video, enhanced versions, zoomed in versions. This is a trick I see prosecutors do a lot when they have a case where there's no legal merit is they take one piece of evidence and then they present it in a dozen, a dozen different ways to make it seem as if it's a dozen different pieces of evidence that you should give greater weight to. It was all only the drone video, but they presented it in so many different forms and versions and video and stills and zooms and enhanced in an effort to give it far more weight than it actually did. And then what they did present was supposedly uh, Kyle Rittenhouse engaging in what's called provocation with intent, pointing his rifle at someone they claimed. Um, and you really can't. It, the, the picture was of such a, a, a low clarity that it was it was like one of these pictures they used to have in the malls around Christmas time, where you'd have to unfocus your eyes and an image would come out of the dots, uh, or these images where some people see a horse and some people see a woman. It's it's whatever your mind wants you to see in those those pixels. Rorschach uh, Rorsch test of evidence. It was it was just absolutely terrible. And of course, we're talking about someone's life here, the the rest of their life in a cage, based on this ambiguous ephemeral. Uh, form of video and just hoping that the jury is going to buy it and convict this this young man of uh, horrible crimes that'll put him in prison for the rest of his life. It was really uh, utterly contemptible. Well, and you know, a lot of our a lot of our members don't really have a full grasp on kind of the rules and ethics of conduct regarding uh, a criminal proceeding. And yeah. 
So as an investigator, I had to have all of my stuff together to the prosecutor with, within a timely manner, and they would go through this stuff, and then they'd provide that through discovery to the defense counsel. And that, that has to be done, at least here, was, was at least two weeks prior, which is, you know, as well as I do, is no time at all. No. Especially when you get somebody that is is trying to kind of fudge their way through a case and all of a sudden they include all this other crap. Right. Thousands of exhibits of evidence, most of which are irrelevant, but which the defense now has to review each and every one of those. And, and people don't get that. Um, I've done hundreds of hours of review on documents that came in through discovery that were just paper ream boxes full and you because there may be something important there right. you afford to not put eyes and read everything that comes in and it's not just in the form that you're seeing it it's well what if they magnify this what if they modify it what if they do look at it in a particularly odd way they're going to claim they provided that to you under discovery you had that piece of evidence i mean i've seen it happen don can tell the story from the george zimmerman trial uh there was evidence from Trayvon Martin's phone uh, that was burned onto a DVD. And what happens, of course, is you have thousands of things burned onto the DVD. So they also provide a written summary report of the contents of the DVD. So you don't have to look at each item digitally. You can kind of scan the written report and see if there's anything that looks interesting there. Well, what the prosecution did was they provided the digital version on the DVD, but they did not include it in the summary report. So when you review the summary report, you don't know what's on the disk. You're relying on the prosecution's representation of that evidence. And then when you get to trial and suddenly it pops up, the prosecution says, well, we gave it to you. I mean, I guess in a sense they gave it to you, but it's like they wrote it in invisible ink on a piece of paper. Theoretically, it's there. If you knew to hold the paper over a flame, the ink would become visible. Uh, but if you don't know that, you, you're not constructively informed of the availability of the evidence. It's just, it's contemptible conduct by a prosecutor. And by the way, folks, the standard for prosecutorial conduct and defense conduct is different and ought to be different. The state has all the power here. The state is supposed to be seeking justice, not just a win. They're not supposed to be ambushing a defense with surprise evidence, suddenly discovered evidence, evidence in a new form that no one ever saw before. Uh, they're supposed to be disclosing everything, presenting a clear narrative of why they believe this person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense can be sneaky and ambiguous and deceptive and all those things. I don't, frankly, I don't think the defense has any object, any obligation to return discovery. If, if I had my way, there would be no such obligation. The burden's on the state. It's up to them to meet their burden. They have to present discovery to the defense. The, the defense should not be obliged to do anything in return until they're actually at trial, uh, where they would or would not present a defense. That's up to them. But the standards of conduct are completely different. The prosecution is supposed to be seeking justice in a broader sense. The defense is supposed to be holding the state to its burden to prove their client guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Those are two completely different things. Andrew, if I could ask you a quick question here. The document dump that happens, right? 25,000 pages and you have two weeks to go through them. You know, this is why it's so important. If you are in a case like Kyle was fighting for his freedom, right? Fight for your life, fight for your freedom. We talk about this all the time you need to have the ability to have a legal department behind you that has the, the means to go through 25, 30, 40,000 pages of junk dumped on you in two weeks. And if you don't have an unlimited 
coverage, you're going to run out of money. You're not going to get the defense you need in the time you need it. Yeah. And it's very easy to overwhelm the defense. I mean, a normal criminal defense, like we look at this Kim Potter trial, it's really three lawyers on the defense right. team. And that's, that's about it. Um, and if they're presented with hundreds of hours of video to review, and you can't just hire a temp to look at this stuff, it has to be someone who's knowledgeable about what the legal issues and arguments are going to be. That's a high value person that's going to be very expensive. And now they have to watch all this video. But if you don't do that, you get ambushed, you get crushed. And there's other ways the prosecution does this too. It's not just with evidence. If you look at, for example, the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, he basically had one attorney and an assistant on his defense. And the state had, I think they had nine attorneys, maybe another three who were also admitted onto the case. And the, the, the rather the prosecution had nine attorneys, another three admitted on the case. And the prosecution was churning out motion after motion after motion all night. They'd have people writing motions. Well, the the, the one Barium. defense attorney was in court all day. He doesn't even have time to read those things until the end of the day. And then he's supposed to write a response, a 20 page response that night and come back to court prepared to argue the law again. It, it's, it's an impossible burden unless you have a defense team that's that's enormously well resourced to be able to to meet those demands. Absolutely. You know, that's one of the things it's hard to get your mind around it. Right. Everybody has their own filters when they're looking at life, you know. My frame of reference is this, right? I don't do these things, so I don't imagine that anybody else does. We run through that in our lives all the time. And we never imagine, I've never imagined the prosecutors to act the way I saw them act in the Kenosha case, that they absolutely were just going over and beyond. I mean, they weren't trying to press the case. They were trying to create things. Right. And, and at that point, you realize that, holy cow, when the state decides to do a political job on you, just like this other case, the Chauvin case, uh, 12 lawyers to two, they, they can just overwhelm. They have unlimited resources. And, and we don't even believe that happens. And then all of a sudden, boom, we see this happening. Yeah. And, and to be fair, 99.9% .9 of prosecutors and 99.9% .9 of prosecutions are not run that way. I mean, most prosecutors are well-intentioned civil servants seeking justice, trying to protect the community from bad actors. But they have the power to do this if they wish to overwhelm and defense with uh, improper legal argument, with irrelevant evidence. Um, we give prosecutors enormous power and discretion. And when it's used prudently with a sense of justice, it's not a problem. The trouble is when you elect to those positions of power people who lack the ethical framework to apply that power in an ethical way, you end up with these really egregious cases. And maybe unfortunately, we, we, some political actors have discovered how cheap it is to buy prosecutor right. seats. I mean, th these are positions where normally in most jurisdictions, your local prosecutor has been there for 20 years, 25 years. He's a well-established member of the legal community. Everybody knows him. Uh, no one's really running against him. That's just not really done. Uh, if there is a competitive race, they're spending $2,000, $3,000, $5,000 for that race. Well, if somebody comes in and dumps half a million dollars into that race and buys TV time and newspaper advertisement, um, well, that's how old I am, you know, Facebook advertisement, I guess, um, you know, th they've just bought that seat. There's no way the established guy can compete with that. And often the people who are getting that kind of funding are politically motivated actors who are intent on using that power of that office for political purposes. Yeah, we were seeing that. And, and not only in, um, in California, we're not only seeing it in those kind of prosecutions, but in the lack of prosecutions sure. for horrible crimes that are just allowing to go un, unseen. In um, Sacramento, excuse me, not Sacramento, in Seattle, 
the, the uh, public defenders there aren't making plea deals because whatever they would have asked for is more than what the DA is coming back and offering them. So they say, okay, we'll go for six months. DA comes in. How about time served? It's like, yeah, you know, why those not, things why? are happening. Well, you know, and Andrew's talking about the, the volumes of stuff you can overwhelm a defense team with. <clears throat> Something that a lot of people don't understand is, is as an investor, you have to turn over things um, that might not be favorable to the prosecution. If I come across something that, that you know, we're, we're working a case against Phil, just... Again? <laughs> um, and, and all of a sudden I come across this deal that like, man, he, he may have, he may have something over here. I have to turn that across. I gotta, I gotta let the defense know that that exists. Right. It's a, it's a whole fairness thing. And that's the one thing that we didn't see in, in the Kenosha case. It was just, it, we should never do this as all our, our final goal is, is a victory. I, that's not what this is about. It's finding the truth. And it's not for me as an investigator to establish, and it's not for Andrew as an attorney to come in and do. It's we're gonna we're gonna give you all the sides of this and let a jury of our peers make that decision. Um, Andrew, I don't know if you had, if you'd seen the stuff going on outside with, um, you know, Phil and I talked about this earlier. Um, a guy that calls himself some type of honorary nephew of George Floyd or something. And he's broadcasting stuff live from his car. I mean, he's just, he's live streaming and he's talking about, we have people in the courtroom. We know who the jurors are. They better come back with the right decision. And, and that kind of tampering, I, you know, I don't know why you didn't write a warrant and go after that guy right then. Yeah, you ought to. I mean, I'm aware that stuff happened. I, I, I don't follow that out of court stuff closely because, of course, I'm really doing a legal analysis. So I'm trying to restrict my framework to what's actually happening inside the courtroom. Uh, but I hear about that stuff, even though I'm not looking for it. One can only imagine what the jury's hearing, uh, yes. even though they're not looking for it, if, if they're abiding by the judge's instructions. But it's, you know, we live in an Internet age. You're exposed to everything. Uh, when I started as a lawyer, you could just tell a jury, hey, just don't watch the six o'clock news and they'd be pretty protected from hearing anything about the case. But now we're all immersed in our social media. We're all exposed to information all the time that we're not seeking out. It's pushed at us. Uh, so it's almost impossible unless you tell jurors you're not allowed to use the Internet for the next three weeks, which to most modern Americans would be, you know, a, a, a catastrophic emotional event for them. Uh, so judges just don't do that. Yeah. Um yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and, you know, to me, that still should be the most protected part of this whole, the whole show is, is ensuring our jurors are, are safe and protected and don't have these morons coming, coming behind making, making veiled threats or direct threats or whatever. And, 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 and it's veiled. only going to get worse, folks. So this problem's not getting better on, on any level. So uh, the problem of politically motivated prosecutors, this, this is all win-win for these guys. Uh, there is no downside to them. Um, either they win the case and they get a conviction, like, by the way, we just got in the Kim Potter trial a few minutes ago, uh, convicted on both counts of manslaughter. Uh, so they've won the conviction. That's a win at trial. Or they lose at trial, 
like in the Rittenhouse case, uh, but they've won politically. They've won within their social community. They fought the good fight. They did the best thing they were able to do. It didn't result in a conviction, but at least they tried. Those people get book deals. They get CNN legal analyst gigs. They, get, they get promoted. Another... They run for office. I mean, the, another... the guy who was the prosecutor there had already run for DA in an adjacent jurisdiction. He lost that race, but he has a much higher profile now than he did in the last race, and he'll run again. And by the way, in a few years, Judge Schroeder in the Rittenhouse case did a great job of mostly keeping those prosecutors in check, uh, not from their worst abuses, however, but from many of their, their lesser abuses. But in five years or 10 years, that's not Judge Schroeder on the bench. That's Judge Binger on the bench making those calls. You know, the other thing is when they act like that, we say, why are they doing that? But that's ensuring the next $500,000 donation to run for their case. They're, they're plying their masters, right? The one who's, who's giving them sure. half a million dollars to run their case. That's what he wants them to do. That's what they do. Guess what? They get another half a million dollars to run for that. Right. So maybe Binger didn't have a half million dollars funding last maybe time, but maybe he gets it next time because now he's on their radar screen or, or as a warrior for, for their cause. He'll get it for his judge uh, running for judge. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like the, the other Wisconsin case, the uh, Christmas Day parade with the, the vehicle going through the crowd, very purposely going through the crowd. Um, and the guy immediately, people start looking at it. It's like, this guy's out on bail and he just, you know, he, he, why is he even out? He should be locked up. And you have a prosecutor in that jurisdiction, the, D, the present DA, who ran on the platform of getting rid of cash bail and cash bond and we're, we're not going to do that anymore. It's not fair. And then as soon as great publicity hits this thing, you know, he is like, you know, we're going to get down to the bottom of this. I'm going to find out who let this guy go. And it's like, you did. Right. For, for a moment, he's talking about it because he's feeling some political heat, but uh, you don't see that case getting nearly the coverage in the mainstream media, not necessarily the media we see folks. We have to be very aware of this. Uh, social media puts all of us in bubbles. So they only send you information that they think you will like or will get you energized. Um, the, the other, you know, the rest of the world is not seeing the version of the news that you're seeing. And they're probably hearing nothing about Wakesha. Um, we just had a case in California, or not in California. We had somebody released from a psychiatric ward from California, went to Idaho, killed a 70-year-old man and cannibalized part of him. So it comes back to this, you know, Rob and I talk about this all the time is why is there no responsibility on the people who let them out? Somebody said, Hey, this guy's good. Right. Just like the, the, the person who did the car, you know, Hey, he can go out on no cash bail. That's no problem. You know, these are good people. We should put them back out on the street. They're trustworthy. Um, they had a school shooter shot four kids. He's out the next day. The people who put these folks back on the streets, they have blood on their hands. And I don't know why we are not able to hold them accountable for the decisions they make that put the rest of the people at risk. Right. Well, we need to distinguish between, you know, what requires societal efforts to hold people accountable and what requires what's within the realm of individual accountability. We can't hold responsible as individuals. We cannot hold responsible the people who release these monsters without bail or out of institutions. There's nothing we can do to hold them accountable. 
Societally, we can. If we decide to elect different people to government, we'll get different outcomes. But as an individual, Andrew Branca has zero ability to hold those people accountable. What I do have the ability to do as an individual is one, be prepared to defend myself and my family, be armed, two, do everything within my power not to have to use those tools if it's possibly avoidable, and three, if it's not avoidable and I'm compelled to use those tools, make sure I'm also well-positioned to win the legal fight just as I was well-positioned to win the physical fight. Yeah, yeah. Those You're are singing our song there, Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why I'm a big fan of you guys. <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things that, um, <clears throat> in, you know, we, we talk about it pretty frequently about about the benefits of membership with CCWSA. Um, I, I don't think the average person really comprehends what a big deal it is to have a jury consultant, to be going through this stuff as we're going through uh, jury selection and, and questioning and and it's got to be on point right then. I mean, it's, it's in the courtroom working right. aggressively, very active. Um, because if you don't do that, and all of a sudden you get two people on there that are absolutely biased. They're, they, they can't be fair and objective. Man, you're, you're in trouble. I mean, that it, it, it's every facet of the game. So if, if you imagine it like the trial itself as, as a football game, uh, how that playing field is defined, the dimensions of it, what you have to do to score a goal, all of that, that's defined slightly differently for every trial. And that's all defined in the pre-trial process. What evidence will be allowed? What legal arguments will be allowed or not allowed? Those arguments are made before a judge. And each side argues that there's their position on a piece of evidence or on a legal argument, and the judge makes a decision. And that's it. It's over. So you don't, your lawyer doesn't get to think later that night, oh, if only I had argued X instead of Y, uh, unless, we might have had a, it's too late. You, you've uh, got to win in the moment. And the jury is the referees DA, right? on that playing field. So if you get bad referees and you're making those decisions, again, in the moment, you don't get to think later today uh, in the evening, oh man, if only I had asked that prospective juror this question or that question, it, it's too late. It's too late for that. So you unless need a quality a of the legal team that Then you, you can just bring that. it up anyway, right? If you're, you just bring it up anyway. Yeah, right. just, just taint the jury and, and run with it. Well, you know, again, the judge did such a good job. He, he at, at one point in time, when Binger goes after Rittenhouse for not making a statement, all of a sudden now you're going to, you get to see what else is going on. And holy For crap. seeking legal counsel. <laughs> that, was, that was as that was as wrong as wrong can be, and a lot right. of people don't understand that the the rules are in place for a very specific reason. You know that and, would that actually did catch a lot of us by surprise that they that we didn't realize you couldn't do that. Andrew, would you kind of touch oh, no. as to why that was there? Yeah, no, you have an absolute right to legal counsel, and the fact that you sought legal counsel cannot be used against you in a court of law, cannot be mentioned before the jury, and it's the same with your right to remain silent. You have an absolute right to remain silent, cannot be used against you, cannot be mentioned in front of the jury. These are very, very old, well-established legal principles in American law. Uh, anyone thinking that the prosecutor didn't realize he was misstepping there has no idea how this game works he absolutely knew that it was strictly prohibited for him to mention either of those things and he did it regardless because 
the point wasn't really the answer he was going to get to the question. The point was the question. The jury was going to hear right. the question. That's why you're not allowed to mention it in the first place. And he knew that. And the judge got very upset. Frankly, it would have been perfectly legitimate grounds for a mistrial, uh, a mistrial with prejudice, which means not only is this trial over, but the prosecution's not allowed to try you again on the same charges. Um, ultimately, the judge decided not to go that direction. You know, now that we know what the outcome is, that works uh, fine in hindsight. I mean, we know he got acquitted of all the charges, but you don't know that at the time this decision is being made. Uh, that that was perfectly legitimate grounds for a mistrial with prejudice, um, which the defense asked for, but, uh, you know, didn't get. I mean, in a sense, now that he's been acquitted, it's better uh, because people would always say, hey, if it hadn't been for the mistrial, who knows, maybe he would have been convicted. Uh, now we know that's not the case. We know he was acquitted by the jury on, on every single charge unanimously. Uh, so it worked out well for him, but it's a, you know, it's a high stakes game, folks. Uh, nobody knew when that verdict was being read what it was going to be. Well, absolutely. Kyle didn't. I mean, right. when he finally got that last not guilty, I mean, he'd been holding it together and holding it together. And his lawyers didn't. You could see it on their faces when the jury came back into the courtroom. They, they were they didn't know what to expect at they all. Weren't, they weren't quite as shocked as Shapiro when OJ was not guilty. <laughs> yeah well that was he couldn't believe it. he's like what that trial's a case study all in and of itself yeah absolutely yeah I, oj didn't believe it if you remember his, his look it was just like what? Huh? <laughs> oh my god we won yeah, he started uh, running through airports again jumping over uh, luggage um the uh the the choice to put kyle on the stand um and my opinion is if you're going to go with self-defense, you almost really don't have a legit shot if you don't go on. Um, but to go on with such a young man and to, and to be as composed for the most part as he was, uh, what were your thoughts? Well, it's, it's extremely high risk, right? So there's really three reasons you, you don't put your, your, your client on the stand of your criminal defense attorney. One, the most common, is that he's actually a criminal. I mean, most criminal defense defendants are criminals. And so they have a criminal background and all that can be brought out in court once they're on the witness stand. It's just character evidence and any witness's character can be attacked for credibility and a variety of other reasons. Um, of course, Kyle didn't have that problem. He was squeaky clean. So that one's checked off. We don't need to worry about that. But there are two other risks that are unavoidable, even if your client is squeaky clean. One is that uh, a skilled prosecutor by being snide and sarcastic will will get them to um, have some kind of outburst on the witness stand, uh, respond with anger, uh, which is very, very bad in the self-defense case because then you just look like an angry person, right? Which is what the prosecutor is trying to sell you at. Uh, you want to look as the most reasonable person there. And the third risk is that you know a, a smart prosecutor, and whatever you may say about Binger, and I don't think much of him as a human being, but uh, he was a good lawyer from a technical perspective. He knew what he was doing as an attorney. Um, a good attorney, a good prosecutor, and a good defense attorney, um, they're always thinking about the closing. What is the narrative they're going to sell to the jury at the end, just before the jury goes into deliberations? They have a story in mind that they want to be able to tell, but that story has to be built out of building blocks, building blocks of evidence and testimony. So through the whole trial, sometimes you'll hear a lawyer ask a question of a witness. And it's like, well, why would that matter? Well, it may not matter 
in the moment, but it may matter as one of the building blocks for a larger narrative he's planning to create for the closing argument. And they may ask what seems like basically the same question in slightly different ways, because what they're trying to do is get a response containing very specific words out of the witness, words they can say, even the witness himself, even the defendant himself said this, and then repeat those three words or four words or five words, usually out of context, uh, but in a way that makes them look very bad. And while Kyle Rittenhouse didn't have to worry about the, uh, the reputation problem because he didn't have a bad reputation, when they put him on the witness stand, his lawyers never know if they're going to encounter the outburst problem or the carefully selected words out of his mouth problem. You have no control over that. Uh, you can tell the defendant to remain calm and not engage in an outburst. But listen, Rittenhouse was subject to three hours of cross-examination. It's hard to remain calm, especially when you listen to the tone and the nature of the things that Binger was saying during that cross-examination. And you, if you go back and watch it, you'll hear Binger ask the same question four, five, six times in slightly different ways because he's looking to drag those specific words out of Rittenhouse. And Rittenhouse, unlike Binger, who's a professional interrogator, that's his job, um, Rittenhouse is just a kid. He's an 18-year-old. He has no idea what those words are, how damaging they could be. And so as a defense attorney, you, you cannot protect your client against those second two risks. So no matter how clean your client is, you're encountering those risks. Now, I think Rittenhouse did great. Uh, it worked out fine. I don't think he damaged himself. I think he presented very well in front of the jury. Uh, but you don't know that going in. That's the fortunate outcome we got at the end. Uh, so very, very high risk. Uh, as it happens, it worked out. It worked out well. I mean, he's a, he's a remarkable kid. You know, the thing that uh, Binger had as far as his building blocks for his closing, I thought was unique that one of the building blocks of evidence is an AR-15. So if you just rack it, point it at the jury and wave it around uh, with your finger on the trigger, that's a pretty good building block of evidence if you want to try and intimidate somebody. I'm just thinking. Maybe well, just you know, me. most people, I, I shouldn't, we're all gun people. So guns don't bother us. They're comfortable to us. Right. And they're comforting to us. And it would have uh, just made us angry. But for people who are not gun people, a, a gun is like a rattlesnake in the room. I mean, it's terrifying to them. It's inherently dangerous. They could look at it wrong and it could discharge and kill somebody. That's how they feel about it at an emotional level. And of course, the prosecutor is going to press all those emotional buttons. It's going to rack it. It's going to point it. Gonna, sometimes they pull the trigger. I mean, it's unbelievable. You're absolutely right. And again, it's an intentional thing. And that's, you know, we could just come down to this time and time again. Your defense, after a fact, even the legitimate thing, I don't think we've seen an online or a video of a more obvious self-defense case in Kyle Rittenhouse. They probably should have never gone to trial, but, but they will. They're, they're going to go to trial. And, you know, if you don't have the protection in your house, you're going to lose everything you own. And, and hopefully you'll have a defense team that can cover you, or you can go to ccwsafe.com, fix all that. Yeah, I mean, people need to understand how expensive these things are. I mean, when I consult on a, on a, a killing case, a manslaughter or murder case, it's extremely common for the defense to burn through a couple hundred thousand dollars before they ever get to trial. Very common. Uh, and of course, if you don't have that kind of money, don't have those kinds of resources, well, then you don't spend it. You don't spend what you don't have. And by the way, the lawyers don't work for free, folks. So, um, you know, I, when I consult on the case, I get paid up front. That's just the way the system works, because I know I won't get paid after the fact if I'm not paid up front. Um, and if you don't have that kind of money, well, that's fine. But um, there's a there's an unbelievable difference between a 
$200,000 legal defense or a $400,000 legal defense and something that's one-tenth of that. Um, if you just look at the Kim Potter case or look at the Rittenhouse case, you'll see these use of force experts brought in. To, the, the state gets all those experts for free. Their experts are free for the state. It doesn't cost them anything effectively. Um, so if you want to counter their experts' testimony, uh, their, their, their firearms examiners, all that stuff, if you want to counter that, you have to bring in your own experts. And those experts are costly. Frankly, I'm costly if I'm involved in your case. But if you don't have them, the jury only hears one side of the story. And if you've ever heard an argument from somebody and you only hear one side, it always sounds pretty compelling until you hear the other side. So you better have the resources to present that other side or a jury is going to arrive at a verdict that may be unjust, but is not surprising given that they only heard one side of things. Well, you know, you've you've met our team. You know our yep. guys. <clears throat> um, Gary Eastridge is our critical response team manager. Um, Gary's brilliant. Uh, and he has, well, for 10 years, he was the chief investigator for the district attorney's office here locally. And we've seen cases, you know, you were talking about Kyle invoking his right and not not sitting down to be questioned and, and not doing anything without an attorney present. Um, I never had an issue as an investigator sitting down with a client or, you know, with a, a defendant and their attorney. Um, I, I got no qualms with that. If you want to sit in there, that's fine. I'm, I'm not doing anything that's shady that, that I shouldn't be doing. Um, but I'm telling you, there's, there's been some huge cases that Gary sat in on, and it's exactly what you were talking about, Andrew. You get a professional interrogator, and they're just hammering and hammering and hammering. Which is what detectives are too, right? And by the way, when I say that, folks, I don't mean in, in a derogatory way. This is their job. This is what we pay them to do. So they're only doing what they're supposed to be doing. But they are, they are literally professionals. We send them to school to learn how to do this. Yes, absolutely. And Gary has has been the guy that has to review some of those cases as they're coming in. You get the prosecutor that says, take a look at this real quick. And he does. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, this is a false confession. And you go back and you look at it and you've got an investigator that really is either completely untrained or just totally blatantly violating their their sworn oath yeah or, or you get a suspect you know and if you're badly motivated as an investigator you get a suspect and frankly it's not that hard to tell that this is someone that you're going to be able to steer around yeah. you're going to be able to point them where you want them to go again that's that's why we tell tell our members um i, I don't want you to to be crass or or not not even, I don't even want you to be impolite, but right. if if you are involved in an incident, let them know that. Listen, I'm I'm very shaken up. I've just been through this horrible ordeal, and I would absolutely like to sit down with you and give you my side of the story. But I want to wait and and make sure that I don't do anything to get myself in trouble. I'm going to wait until my attorney's present. Yeah, honestly, I would just do that last part. You know, obviously be polite. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. All of that. Obviously be compliant. I mean, it's not up to you if you're going to get arrested. That's up to them. No one, no one does not get arrested because they don't want to be arrested. That's not how it works. Uh, be compliant, be polite. Um, but just say, uh, you know, sir, I, I really, before I talk to anybody, I feel like I should speak to my attorney. 
And then if you remember CCW safe, call CCW safe. That's what the number on the card is for. Yeah. You know, and and you're, you're going to probably go to jail for a while. They're going to put you in cuffs, take you away because they don't know what's up. That's the least, least important 20 years from now. That'll be an interesting story. You tell at parties. Right. And, but I mean, so you're not going to be able to talk your way out of going downtown by saying, so don't, you're going to, you're going to take the ride, wait for your attorney, say some prayers, you know, I just, peop- I wish people would not Read. worry about that. It's one of the most common questions I get. What can I say to avoid getting arrested? And it's like, it's, it's, it's so unimportant. Um, it, it's so inconsequential. What I'm worried about is, are you going to spend the rest of your life in a cage with unpleasant people? That's the fate we're trying to avoid. And anything you say in an effort to try to not get arrested only jeopardizes our ability to keep you out of that cage for the rest of your life. So just don't worry about it. It's, 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 you know, it's not prison. It's just a jail. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't stress over it. Uh, and as I say, you know, years from now, it'll be a story that you tell our parties. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on and helping us out. Um, we sure do appreciate your insight into this thing. Um, again, guys, we, we always welcome your comments. Um, you can go direct to me, Rob at ccwsafe.com. Um, we appreciate all of you that are our members. We're honored to serve you. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, guys. Hey, will this go out before January 8th? Yes. Can I mention a class I have coming up? Yeah, it's next week. Uh, mylawselfdefense.com slash advanced class. Lawselfdefense.com slash advanced. Saturday, January 8th. We only do it once every year or a year and a half, folks. So if that's of interest, take a look. Thank right. you, guys. So Thank much. you. God bless. Bye-bye.